that was concurrent. <laughs> that was great. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> the talk tonight is about um, joy, gratitude, and wisdom. This is a poem by Chu Chuang, early 8th century, called A Mountain Spring. There is a brook in the mountains. Nobody, I ask, knows its name. It shines in the earth like a piece of the sky. It falls away in waterfalls with a sound like rain. It twists between rocks and makes deep pools. It divides into islands. It flows through calm reaches. It goes its way with no one to mind it. The years go by, its clear depths never change. It's an incredibly beautiful description of impermanence, the stream of life, but also these clear depths, something deeper than life and death that never changes, both happening at the same time. There's a... a, place that we go a lot in Upper Burma, um, and I think that the area, uh, it's known as the spiritual heart of Burma. And it's like these hills overlooking the Irrawaddy River. And the, the hills are made out of limestone. So it was very easy for uh, caves to be um, dug out for Um, monks and nuns long ago. And up the hill above from where we um, teach at a monastery with Sayada Ulakana, uh, there's a cave that um, has had a long tradition of um, monks practicing in it. And uh, the last person that practiced in the cave is said to be known as a fully enlightened being. So when you go in the cave, um, there's a a little Buddha to the right. um, And it's just a very long, very long, thin cave where you can walk back and forth. Very long, very peaceful, very quiet. And whenever I walk in there, I didn't even get to uh, have time to go this past year, but went um, a few years ago. Uh, uh, there's, it's almost like that moment when you said, it's not on. It's like there's this, just this spontaneous, strong sense of my own aspiration to be free. And it hits so strongly. It's like usually I'm so busy. It takes so much to get there and uh, have a very busy life. And I just stand there, go down to bow, and I'm just so struck by this, that sense of, um, 
that call to call home. It's like that homecoming that into those clear depths. And I usually um, weep from a, from a place of just knowing I want to put so much more time into my practice. It's just like knowing that I, I'm, life is so short and knowing, oh, <laughs> this is what I really want to be doing. But knowing I want to be doing the other things, but just knowing, you know, put more time in. It's so powerful. And, it, you know, it's like, of course it's powerful because, you know, that's what's done there. And some of us will have no context for this kind of way of life. You know, so for some people, you know, there are people in Burma that just do metta all the time. That's their life. You know, and, and again, coming from a, a different culture, a different way of life, it's almost like um, inconceivable, but that's the way things are there. So it doesn't seem <laughs> odd when you're there that you would want to put this kind of time into it. Uh, some of you may be old enough to remember um, in some of the early years of television in America there, were, um, there was an Alfred, Alfred Hitchcock TV show, and I think it went to other countries, but it um, was black and white. And it wasn't a movie, it was a regular TV show. And it used to terrify me, but of course I'd keep watching it. You know? <laughs> Just that strange attraction to terror you know, that we have as kids. <laughs> And so I was, I'm watching it, and I was always getting ready to get so scared I'd run out the room, and here it starts. And it's this kind of leave-it-to-beaver family, you know, just kind of uh, breakfast time, three young children, the husband just sits down and is expecting his coffee and eggs and toast, and the mother's running around trying to get the breakfast for the children, and she looks so harried. She just, she just looks so stressed out. And they're all sort of complaining. You know, I didn't want corn chicks for breakfast. I, you know, the egg isn't done well. You know, everybody's complaining. And um, she goes over the edge. You know. <laughs> you might say that she got really identified with this, you know, just aversion. You know, and so uh, she yells really loud, just stop. She just yells, stop. And everything stops. Like, time just stops. So whatever, you know, this milk was about to be spilled, and, you know, like the egg was just being, you know, turned over on the fry pan, and everything just stopped. And it stopped in the whole neighborhood. It stopped everywhere. So the school bus stopped, you know, and she like went outside and everything to her happiness and dismay, right? She had this great relief, like, oh, you know, all of it stopped. And that's what she thought she wanted, right? But then it didn't, it didn't, it didn't, the movie didn't start playing again. It stopped. And it was this, it was a, the show was about her running around, um, seeing everything um, stop like she'd wanted it. And then that just um, realization that that wasn't exactly what she wanted, you know, really deep. 
And I know when I went to um, my first meditation course, I wouldn't have been able to say this, but that's what I wanted. You know, I wanted just everything to stop. And I don't, I didn't, Vipassana, I didn't know what Vipassana was. I didn't, I didn't, I wasn't interested in understanding change. You know, it's just, I didn't have an, I didn't know what any of this was about. And a lot of us get involved in this, you know, and we can explain that there's different types of meditation and that Vipassana, V-I, means nature. Saira Upandita could spend hours and hours explaining what vipassana was. I mean, it was amazing. Pa. He spent weeks on the word pa, of vipassana. You know, so we think we know this stuff, but actually there's such breadth and depth to it. So V is nature. Pasana is sometimes described as as it is. So it's, it's like being with the nature of how things are, as it is. And we tend to think that somehow our body is separate from nature. And this is, this is what's so, um, I think, so heartening about Vipassana, is that it, it, it's, it so includes our bodies. It doesn't bypass the body. You know, it's, and it, it's... It's not that it's only about the body either. As you can see, we're really emphasizing seeing, hearing, touching, smelling, tasting, thinking, emotion. It includes everything. Um, But getting the sense that what we're really, again and again and again, the bottom line is that we're really cutting through the misperception of being separate from nature. And then being separate from how it is, how nature is. Pa is usually, you know, Saida Upandita spent a long time with it, but it, it, he described it as like with, with a full force, like with a, it's like a full understanding of how things are in nature. So Vipassana is about... Um, being with things as they are. Not about stopping. But we learn, and hopefully we're getting a sense um, that we can regulate our practice more and more to being able to find an anchor where we find um, like a temporary calm and tranquility. And that, that, that solitude, that rest that comes from cultivating an anchor is meant to be something that you, that you know you can always come back to. It's meant to something where you gradually build up the energy again. Sayadaw Upandita described energy as courageous energy. It's the courage to be with things as they are. So this is, it's so important to remember that when we don't have that courage, it's not personal. We don't have to take it personally. We, we find ways to cool out, to chill, to, to rest, so that the energy builds, so that we can then be with things as they are again. So that rhythm of the practice is, is back and forth between the, the calm, rest, and the um, exploration.
being with things as they are. And of course it's never that neat and pretty. (laughs) There's a great um, kind of weather that can happen in Hawaii, uh, usually off Kauai, but it comes up on the weather report where it's like a um, tornado over the ocean. And it's so dangerous to um, anybody out in a boat that they put out this really big alert and it says all boats seek safe harbor immediately. All boats seek safe harbor immediately. And I really think we need to do that for ourselves sometimes. You know, it's like, <laughs> whoops, Michelle, seek, you know, seek safe harbor immediately. If we're really noticing that we're triggered when we're really feeling off, it's like, seek safe harbor immediately. And, but we're conditioned, you know, that it's our fault and that we've got to use our willpower, dive in and get, you know, get through it overnight so that we never have to experience it again, right? You know, it's like that's, that's how we're trained. So this, this way of doing things, which is actually with a lot more um, dignity, the dignity being an honest self-assessment that we can, we go, it's that beautiful thing where we go in when we can go in and we move away when we need to move away. And that they're both good practice. So energy, um, when we can really, de- depending how we might want to language when we're with things as they are, even for a few seconds, sometimes we describe it as connecting and sustaining the attention. It can be with a sound, body sensation, but we're not adding the conceptual overlay. Again, it can just be a second, a few seconds, and we're able to We might not be thinking about it, but we actually aren't involved in our thought about the experience. For those moments, or for maybe it lasts a long time, we might notice a thought about the experience, but we're not buying into it. We're not trying to get rid of it. We just see it as thinking. We're actually with the flow of life as it happens. And that builds energy. So this, I'm sure, has already happened for you, but I'm just kind of acknowledging that, that as the energy builds, it's kind of like a metaphor. It could be like if you had a balloon and you were filling it up with air. It can feel like that sometimes, maybe not exactly that. Um, you might not feel like you're filling up with air, but you're filling up with energy. Uh, And it can start to feel a little uncomfortable, but we don't necessarily notice it. What we tend to notice that we're doing, um, which it's like we're letting a little air out of the balloon, we don't notice that we're uncomfortable. We don't realize that this is the point where we're starting to go into unknown territory uh, for ourselves, for our practice. 
Uh, and we tend to um, use up the energy to bring ourselves back to normal by doing whatever we love to do in our head. So if you want to write a book, you write a book. If you want to redecorate the house, you redecorate the house. Whatever it is, if you want to buy a new car, whatever it is you like to do, you'll find yourself doing it. And it's so um, bewildering. Like, oh, you were just right there. It was going so well. And all of a sudden, what happened? It's like you skid out, you don't even know it. And it takes a lot of practice, hence how wonderful two weeks is. But if you find, I know this has already happened for everyone, you find yourself um, really right there, and suddenly you're, you're fantasizing about something. And that it's not, it's not wrong or bad. It's like, <laughs> you know, you just let the air out a bit. And then slowly you'll start to learn, oh, maybe I don't need to let that much air out. And a lot of it is that we, we don't really know, um, what does this mean? Well, it, it doesn't mean like you change anything. It means that you bring the attention just to what is. That's all. It's like there's more energy to really maybe notice whatever it is. If it's fear or it's um, the sound of a bird or a step, you just bring the attention to what's happening more fully. Each moment is unknown. And our capacity to understand that when there's more energy, um, it just, it just um, increases. Another way to describe this from a totally different angle is that mindfulness, pure mindfulness or pure loving-kindness is like warm, soapy water. Uh, And so when it's happening, again, even if it happens a few seconds, but if it happens longer, we tend to call that good practice and why we came to the retreat. But warm, soapy water does what? It, 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 it washes something. So if you had a dirty cloth and you put it in warm, soapy water, dirt comes out. You want it to, right? You wouldn't bother putting a dirty cloth in warm, soapy water if you weren't trying to get the dirt to come out. Well, that's part of why we're on retreat. You actually want the dirt to come out. And it comes out um, when, when you're the most vulnerable. And that's, that's the hard way that this works, but it's how it works. It's like the energy, mindfulness, concentration, equanimity start to go up. You actually feel like you're there, you're exploring, and then the energy starts to go down. You want that nice, good practice back. You start getting vulnerable because you can feel it going. You're like, oh, <laughs> you try to hold on to it. And at the same point, the dirt's coming out. So that, you know, once you practice long enough, you start to get this. You get that that's also really good practice. You know, you resist the next layer that's coming up until you finally go, oh, that's the dropping the hot potato. But it's really, what's wonderful is that you can distill it down to do things. It's usually aversion or attachment. <laughs> And if you can't be with it, then it's doubt, you know. And we all have a hindrance of choice. 
We do, you know. Some people it's aversion. Some people it's attachment. Some people it's sleepiness. I always say if you're sleepy a lot, enjoy it. You're unconscious. You know? It's great. What a great hindrance. Doubt is hard, you know. Doubt's like you're just like really wanting to go home, you know, and it's just like this is not for me, you know. And it's like I can't do it. However, that's really a hard one. But they're, I mean, they're all hard in their ways. But just to remember that we also have our own unique way of reacting to when the dirt comes out. And no one enjoys it. But it's the ability to go, oh, yeah, I'm here for this too. It's the only way I can learn. There's, there's so many different ways of describing what mindfulness is. So we've described it as a pre-verbal awareness that's always happening. We've described it as a soft readiness. We've described it as like a wordless gentleness. There's a longer description that I often use that I haven't gone into exactly, but we've all been referring to aspects of it. So it, it includes recognizing. So you know you can be so asleep at the wheel, you're not aware that hearing is happening. And then when you go, oh, hearing. <laughs> I like to laugh about it. It's so funny. It's like, oh, yeah, hearing. And it's so simple, but it's 50%. It's, it's, just, it's that profound. Because, yeah, hearing, breathing, physical sensation, smelling, you know, all these aspects of life. But then when it's like, oh, fear, or oh, anger, it's very significant, right? Because you could be lost in it, fighting it, lost in it, fighting it. And really, it can take hours sometimes before we, we know, oh, <laughs> enthusiasm. You know, we've been telling somebody about the practice for five hours in our head, right? But actually, we're, we missed the enthusiasm. So it's that recognition, it's just so profound and so important. Thinking, <laughs> wow, talk about significant. Just, you know, it's amazing how much we don't really want to acknowledge it. And that it, when we know it, that it's simply thinking, no problem, just like a little radio on, no problem. But when it's like, oh, it's my thought, and it's like, I got to do something with it, we're lost. Acceptance. And, you know, I love, the, I love the opposites of these rather than just encouraging that we know what the recognition is. The opposite of it is being spaced out. And it's being, the more you can accept being spaced out, the more that recognition will happen. The, less, the more we judge being spaced out, the less recognition will happen. Acceptance. We know what acceptance is. It's just like, oh... Right, my good friend aversion. I was hoping you'd come up tonight, you know. That that just like it it can be a begrudging <laughs> acceptance or just like a very clear, oh, thinking. Okay. But it, it feels wonderful when we shift from that not 
receiving it, not being able to allow it, the willingness to let things be, another huge relief. Interest, and none of these can, you know, you can't make them happen, but you know when interest happens. It's a huge shift. Huge. Just like, whoa. And it's not meant to be dependent on whether something's pleasant or unpleasant or neutral. Huge shift. You can't make it happen, but boy, being interested in something that, you know, like knee pain, (laughs) for example. I had a friend who was going through this horrible divorce, you know, and he came to do a meditation retreat. And at the end, he called and I asked him how it was, and he said, wow, there's nothing like knee pain. (laughs) I said, what do you mean? He said, it makes the divorce seem like a piece of cake, you know? (laughs) It was like, so helpful. Right? You sit a retreat and you come out and nothing can be that bad, right? You know, just like, wow, great, you know. <laughs> and the N, non-identification, R-A-I-N, right? Non-identification is the hardest to understand. We can recognition, acceptance, interest, and they translate they can translate to our, our, our languages much more simply. Non-identification is like, ooh, what does it mean? You know, it's like we can talk around it. I can tell you how it feels kinesthetically. Because when, what it really will feel like, when anything feels like it's mine, <laughs> it's my fear, it's my knee pain, you know, it's whatever, it's my thought, it's so sticky. And when it's just like, it's just a thought, or it's simply a thought, that's the difference. And again, that's, you can't make it happen, but I assure you, if you punch in and punch out, at some point it happens. And it often happens when you don't think it should be happening. The first time it happened for me, I was at breakfast eating a banana, and it was like it started happening, and I wanted to run into the hall and sit because I thought it should be happening when I was sitting. I mean, crazy, right? I was just like, this, I don't want this to be happening when I'm eating a banana. It was so weird. Because I had this idea, right, that sitting was better than eating, and that it was more, more important. Um, and finally, thank God, you know, it takes a long time to eat a banana, you know. Finally, by three-quarters of the way through, I was like, oh, maybe I could try checking this out. It's amazing how we can resist insight. It's it just, you know, you have to kind of have some humor. So these are all different ways we can talk about mindfulness, but a a kind of beautiful description is just that it's awareness infused with wisdom. So it's not just any old awareness, but we have to be grateful for any old awareness. You know, any old awareness, you know, just like kind of knowing you're walking on the planet, again, it's huge. Having understanding with that awareness, of course, you're protected. There's nothing safer. 
And then affectionate awareness, which is what this course is about, like having kindness and understanding in the awareness, it's like you'll feel like you came home. A friend of mine did um, about 20 years of vipassana uh, without any metta. And when he finally uh, felt like he could do some metta, he said to me it felt like he'd been standing in the sun for 20 years, but never felt the warmth. And he came to visit. We, were, um, we overlapped on staff here in 78. <laughs> he was on maintenance, and um, he lives in Honolulu. Uh, I don't see him very much, but he came to visit, visit this year on the Big Island, and um, there were a few people in the car who hadn't meditated, and they asked him, um, you know, why did you stick with meditation? What, what did you get out of it? And he was quiet for a while, and he said, it saved my life. <laughs> and then they asked me, and I said, it saved my life. <laughs> you know, what can you say? I don't know if you've ever held a, a baby bird in your hand, uh, but a baby anything, really. That there's such a um, feeling of the heartbeat and the tenderness with it. And each moment is really like that. Each moment is newborn. Uh, and we, what, whatever it is, whether it's indifference or complacency or um, fear of that kind of vulnerability, um, a lot of the practice is, is being able to at least check out, maybe for a second, that that's, that's really something we all share. You know, birds share, we share it with birds, with turtles, with any being. And I, I think on retreat, I don't think there's anything like the kind of moments we might have where we connect with another being other than human. You know, there's just something so powerful about it that you get to see that we're not separate and that that connection, it's so important, it feeds us. You know, so where I stay here um, this time of year, the turtles come out and lay their eggs and disappear. And they they choose the weirdest places sometimes, you know, from, from a human perspective. Not, you know, they're just like doing their thing, right? But sometimes they'll dig a hole right where the car is, you know, and uh, they travel across roads. It's so vulnerable. So if I walk back to where I stay for a couple of days, it was these little baby snapping turtles were crossing the road. And I know I drive on that road. And I'll usually just pick them up by the tail if they're heading a certain way and bring them over. And I'm like, oh, I hope I don't run you over. It's, it's really hard how um, easily we can kill, not with the intention. But in spring, you just see it. It's just like all this birth, all this vulnerability. 
and how much we want to protect life. And wisdom is understanding that we can't totally protect it. Love is, of course we want to protect it. The Buddha gave an image for loving-kindness as um, the experience a mother cow would have upon seeing her baby calf be born, you know. And it's such a beautiful image, just that, that sense of like the connection again with the newborn. He didn't use the example of a, a bird or a human, a cow, a mother cow. So that, that moment of birth and connection, and for any of us, it's like, again, that feeling, how do you understand how life is? It's that range of, um, we love it, we love, we love life, and we want to be so connected with it, and yet it changes, and it's not all under our control. So can we be at peace with that? And this doesn't mean... Um, that peace with things does not mean, as, as Rebecca had said, but we always want to clarify, it's like equanimity does not mean that we don't do our best, best to want to relieve suffering in the world. Um, and we all need to find our way with that. It's like we don't want to make everybody be like ourselves. Why can't everybody be like me? <laughs> and do what I think they should be doing with their lives, right? It's, it's, that's not love. That's control. Sri Nisargadatta Maharaj um, says some beautiful things about this. So I just wanted to say a few. He said, above all, Approach yourself with reverence. I mean, first and foremost, in terms of our spiritual practice, day and night, for the rest of your life, above all, approach yourself with reverence. I mean, can we even take that in? Sacred, sight, holy, you know, it's like reverence. And there's, that's the truth of things. We're not separate from anything. But can we just remember that? Can we remember that that's the golden rule? And the more we approach ourselves with reverence, the more we can approach others with reverence. Another thing he says is, love tells me I'm everything. Wisdom tells me I'm nothing. And between the two, my life flows. You can't get better than that. In terms of an instruction and a teaching, there's nothing better. Because we want to come down on one or the other, and we're, it's types. There's the types that love wisdom tells me I'm nothing. And there's the types that love love tells me I'm everything. But the paradox, as Jesse was saying, the dichotomy of, the, of things and just being able to to me, the maturing of the human heart is being able to really understand this paradox. 
and between the two my life flows. Because otherwise, if we just have the awareness with understanding and there's no understanding of interconnectedness or love, it's like standing in the sun and not feeling the warmth. But if you're just leaning on love, you're going to inevitably use it as a kind of control. I love you if. Big one. If you you put the compost out when I want you to, you know, it's like just live with people for a little while. And it's just like, oh my, you know, if you think you're calm and peaceful, you know, they didn't do the dishes. Hmm. When I wanted them to. You know, it's just amazing, you know, just how do we live with each other? So feeling our own goodness, that ability, that however we might use the word, it might not be goodness, it might be the word belonging. But some word that helps us actually lean toward even believing in our worthiness worth versus our worthlessness, yeah? It's like this is so important, again, because we tend to like to keep all this in the shadows, whether it's everything's our fault or I'm the best. You know, we just, we just it's all conditioning. If somebody's extremely self-effacing or if they're extremely self-aggrandizing, the Buddha called it all conceit which is incredibly deep again. It's like he called conceit anytime we're feeling, I am better than, I am worse than, or I am equal to. And he called that kind of comparison with anything, I am better, I am worse, I am equal to. He called it madness, mm-hmm. insanity. Because, again, he really, really taught that that the sense of a a little me, that the I, is an illusion. And so any kind of comparison is crazy. So, again, we're not going to try to demonize where we tend to have those, you know, some people I am better than is the first defense, I am worse than is the second, or I am equal to is the third. We all have our way, and we know each other really well. Some of us, I'm the worst. And being the best would be, like, excruciating, right? And other people, I'm the best. Being the worst would be excruciating. And then, you know, if push comes to shove, at least where we can say, well, I'm at least equal to, right? And it's amazing how we suffer over this and that it's all an illusion. I always wish that we could roll in, um, you know, IVs to every person beside their, their cushion or chair and that in the drip would be reassurance. <laughs> And we just sit there, and the whole sitting, we just get a little bit more reinsurance. We just fill up with reassurance and go out and walk and, you know, dry up again, <laughs> come back in and get more reassurance. I mean, it's amazing how much we need reassurance that we're okay. Somehow, where did we lose it? But that, again, it's that, that dance between the worthiness and the worthlessness. 
the worthiness and the worthlessness. And which one do you want to believe? So, one more thing. Srinta Zargadatta said, self-hatred is a grievous error. Self-hatred is a grievous error. You know, and it's one of my karmic knots. Deep conditioning. And I was, you know, like when the thunderstorm starts and I'll think, oh, here comes the storm. It's like, just if you just want to know a glimpse of just my conditioning around thunder and lightning, well, my mother would gather up all the kids and put us in the closet, and then she'd get in the closet, shut the door, and scream. Scream. Just scream. And I remember, I was the youngest, I remember, I remember just like looking at the situation and thinking it was hysterically funny when I was a little kid, which would make my mother really mad, you know, but I just was like, wow, you know, it's weird, right? Drag the kids in the closet and the whole storm comes in. Every, every sound she'd be like, ah, she'd be crying. I'd be like, oh, weird, you know. But somewhere it went in, you know, of course, I was a little kid, it went on for years until I finally, when you're old enough, you can finally say, no, I'm not going in the closet, you go in the closet, you know, I'm fine. Um, And then my father got hit by lightning five times, you know, he was reckless, adventure, you know, and it was like so funny to watch, how extreme can you get, right? He'd be out on the ladder fixing the roof, and my mother's in the closet screaming, right? You know, <laughs> you know? and you wonder who do you who do you identify with, right? You know, both look a little not very, you know, helpful. <laughs> so for me, you know, here I am, right near where I was born and grew up, and it's like these storms come, and it's like, oh, okay. <laughs> Well, I don't really want to go out in it, because I'll probably get hit by lightning, right? But I don't really want to go in the closet and scream, you know? (laughs) And then my practice is just like, you know, you can just go, oh, hearing, right? (laughs) It's just like hearing, you know, you go, it's wet, you know, but it's like, it's okay, you know? But that's actually our, the story of our lives, the conditioning. The conditioning and the mindfulness is giving us a choice again and again not to have to believe it, not to have to get rid of it. If it comes up, not a problem because we see it so clearly. At my last retreat, not this last one, the one before, I was, had been sitting for a while and I went into the bathroom and I looked in the mirror and my first thought was, you know, it was just like, just like, you know, you have to put this on, right? So quick, concurrent. I looked in the mirror. I hate myself. Just like, that's the conditioning. And it's so great. That's the karmic knot. But for me at this point, it was just like, oh, seeing, thought. No need to get rid of it. But a lot of my life, it was either get rid of it or buy into it. But now it's just like, oh, and if I feel like I'm buying into it a little, it's like, oh, <laughs> it's okay, honey. <laughs> you don't have to hate yourself. It's okay. 
<laughs> you know, it's like, it's a conditioning, you know, you have to have humor with it, you know. It's just this face. I mean, I'm really more amazed as I get older, just like how much importance we place on this little part of the universe. It's amazing, really, when you, you know, just the suffering, the expense. <laughs> it's incredible. And I was walking out um, to do this talk, and this turtle came out to lay its eggs, and it saw me, and it, it was just like, again, a few moments of connection. And it just means so much. There's a um, great nature writer, um, Rick Bass, that calls, he calls um, this connection with other beings, he calls um, other beings the bearers of the heart's truth. Sometimes. You know, and so for somebody it might be a dragonfly, for somebody it might be... um, an eagle or a robin, but certainly, again, it's like if you're feeling like you're having a hard time and you're kind of going into that really identified place where it's just like it's my problem and it's like my fault or somebody else's fault or just like the black hole. Um, if If you spend long enough outside and connect with something else, usually you can at least start to feel more at ease. So when another way that I work with self-hatred, if it comes up, but say um, <laughs> arrogance comes up for you, either way, it doesn't matter. They're both a defense. And it's like what, you, what I always go when it starts to come on is, oh, self-hatred is a defense. And I, what's it defending? I have to walk myself through if it hits hard. Oh, what's it defending? Oh, vulnerability. I just don't want to feel vulnerable. And then what's that? Oh, I don't want to have any unpleasant feeling. I'm afraid of a pain that I think might be coming up, right? You can be afraid of, your, of self-hatred itself, but wherever we start going, it's just that sense that we never really know what's going to happen next. That's the truth. That's the vulnerability. And again, it's something we all share. If we really get we all share this, we would have so much more compassion, so much less judgment of each other. In fact, I always bring this up because it's so significant, if we ask somebody to volunteer to have their mind broadcast for an hour in the hall, (laughs) no one would do it. The Dalai Lama wouldn't do it. Really. And this is what we have to get over, this idea that it's going to seem different after 20 years of practice. That isn't it. The idea is that you just stop buying into it. And it's as you stop buying into it, as you give it less and less importance, it is like a radio on in the background. 
it just it's just like you learn to not give it all this importance because the more you give it importance the more power it has and and that takes time again it's a gradual process that actually works <coughs> i had a friend <laughs> these are just sort of basic things but he was an, he's been an acupuncturist a long time and it's starting to get more accepted but way back you know 35 years ago or 40 when he started it wasn't that accepted and he said his least favorite question anyone would ask him was does acupuncture work and he'd be like, you know, he's been doing it as a career for like 30 years. You know, no, acupuncture actually doesn't work. You know, what, <laughs> what are you going to say? You know? <laughs> but then I think when you know something for a long time and you've done it, you can actually say, well, I've seen it be really helpful with this, right? And maybe not so helpful with something. But, you know, you start learning more about it. And the mindfulness, it's like, who can argue with awareness with understanding that you apply toward anything at any moment in your life? It has nothing to do with gender, age, class, race, country, religion. It just doesn't. It could. We can make it into a problem like that, but it doesn't have to be. There's a a Japanese word for begging bowl that, when it's translated, means something like just enough. Just enough. Uh, and if, if it's really interesting to reflect on the ancient teaching that the Buddha gave with monks and nuns, which is he taught them to beg every day for food. Beg every day for food. And this makes the monk or nun completely, utterly, totally dependent on lay people. And they're not allowed to store it. That's one of the rules. So you get the amount that you need for that day, and that's it. And so the next day you're dependent on a layperson every day. And I think culturally, I mean, we tend to be so afraid of dependency, right? And he created that as a way of life for monks and nuns. But he, you know, of course, that creates a way of life for lay people. And I didn't really understand this until I spent time in Burma, but it's like a beautiful reciprocal relationship. It's, it's just amazing that like, um, if you're a little kid and you grow up in the village and there's a monastery nunnery, and in the schools, the little, the little kids, some of them, are, we call them nunlets and monklets. You know, and so you you would go to school with kids that ordained and then maybe weren't ordained and then were ordained. You would have played with the abbot of the monastery, right? It It's very different for us to kind of adopt some of these um, teachings and try to understand their underlying meaning. And as we understand the underlying meaning, to actually be able to rest on the underlying meaning. 
So the underlining meaning, the Japanese word is the closest to the, the trend, to like the meaning, the bowl being just enough. It really cuts through um, complacency, arrogance, just like the sense that somehow what we're receiving in the moment isn't just enough. In fact, it's always more than enough. When you start getting very aware and you see how much is really happening in the moment, you know, that we're really there, vulnerable, we get to see why it's so hard to be awake. There's so much happening. That's insight. And so if you're really with a breath, it's going to be more than enough. If you're really with some food and you really taste it and swallow it and then you, you eat where you're really receiving it, it's plenty. You, you hear, you receive the sound, it's plenty. And that's if you look at when you feel grateful. What is the cause of gratitude? It's always when we've received and usually received deeply. You know, so we can eat a meal, right? And we're all caught up in something. We missed it entirely. Are we grateful? We weren't even there. And it's not to, like, give ourselves a hard time about it, but it's starting to understand the causes and conditions for gratitude. It's the deepest spiritual emotion, and hence the begging bowl. To, to understand... Um, Gratitude is dependency acknowledged. And, you know, again, we can joke about if we held somebody like underwater and then let them up for air, they'd be very, very, very grateful for that air, right? It's like that's how dependent we are on air. We can go, I think, three days without water. But we can't go long without air. And look how uninterested we are in the breath. I mean, you have to have humor with it. We are that dependent on air, and we just think it's the most boring thing in the world. Fascinating, right? Or if you've been with somebody dying, and that that, that last breaths, you know, are just, or somebody being born, and the first breaths, it's just like, you get how important it is. The one thing that I miss so much about retreat is um, how grateful I get to feel at times. Just having the time. I miss it the most. The last retreat I taught, there was a student that has kind of put in some time, but for five years, but really put in some time at home, and not not tons of retreats, but some one every year and and daily practice, and I could see something really had shifted for him at, during a sitting, and he came for an interview a couple days later just before the retreat ended. And I said, it looks like, what? I said, what stopped? 
And he thought about it for a while, and he said, and he, he was so happy, but it wasn't like, if you look at the image of the Buddha, there's a subtle smile, right? He's not going off like a rocket, right? Like, so there's a, this, this, yeah, this man smiled, and he said, expectation stopped. Expectation stopped. So another way you might say that more clearly is that buying into expectation stopped doesn't mean it doesn't come up. But if you look carefully at ambition or expectation or anything in that realm, it kills connection. And it kills connection with ourself, with ourself, but it kills it with anyone else. So if you're with a friend and you have any expectation, it, you're not going to feel connected. But it's like with that with anything. It's like with an aunt. <laughs> I don't mean an Aunt Michelle, but an aunt. You know, or uh, just anything. That, that beauty of being able to just feel the connection. We're not trying to demonize the expectation. We're just trying to see it clearly and not be, you know, imprisoned by it, caught in it. The Buddha taught that there's two rare and precious types of human beings. One who shows kindness and one who appreciates or is grateful for the kindness shown to them. Two rare and precious types of human beings. Hmm. Anyone who shows us kindness is a lifeline for us in our life. You know, it's what makes life worth living. And someone at the retreat um, told me that she had always thought, um, you know, that maybe kindness for herself meant um, maybe taking a bath. And she's learning here that, you know, learning how to be kind to herself is much more than just taking a bath. And, you know, if you've had any moment where you learned how to be kind toward fear or kind toward somebody that you were feeling judgmental toward, you know, or or any kind of kindness toward your breath or toward anything alive that's um, appearing, you know, it's worth, it's worth 
the knee pain or the back pain or the, you know, any of the bumps that happen on a retreat. It's like um, any moment that we actually get to feel grateful uh, cuts through the I am better than, I am worse than, I am equal to. And it means we've really let ourselves um, receive life, the preciousness of life, the goodness of life and the mystery of life, ultimately. So this is a, to end, a poem by Saigyo. Whatever it is, I cannot understand it. I'll repeat that. Whatever it is, I cannot understand it. Although gratitude stubbornly overcomes me until I'm reduced to tears. It's often how we sense gratitude on retreat. It's like that. That understanding is such a relief. Affectionate awareness is such a relief. And we're so grateful. Whatever it is, I cannot understand it, although gratitude stubbornly overcomes me until I'm reduced to tears. Let's sit for a minute. So it's time for walking and then the metta chant sits.